Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Robert Maplethorpe. The J. Paul Getty Museum and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art have collaborated on a two-venue retrospective exhibition titled Robert Maplethorpe, The Perfect Medium. It is on view at each museum, they jointly acquired Maplethorpe's art and archives in 2011, through July 31st. The Gettys Paul Martineau and LACMA's Britt Salveson, each a past Man Podcast guest, co-curated the exhibitions. We'll jump in on the book side. On the occasion of the exhibitions, the Getty has published two major Maplethorpe books. The first, Robert Maplethorpe, The Pictures, is a catalog of the shows. Robert Maplethorpe, The Archive, is effectively the first look at Maplethorpe's own archive, a nearly unknown trove of material. It was edited by Michelle Brunick and Francis Turpak, who joins me on this week's program. Turpak is the curator of photographs at the Getty Research Institute. Prior to the Maplethorpe acquisition, she was most recently in the news for bringing Louis Baltz's archive to the GRI. On the second segment, we'll revisit a 2013 conversation with Catherine Opie. She joined me to discuss the last major Maplethorpe exhibition, LACMA's presentation of his X portfolio, which features sadomasochistic imagery, his Y portfolio of floral still lifes, and his Z portfolio of nude portraits of African American men. Opie is widely considered the foremost synthesizer of Maplethorpe's work. Not only has Opie also focused her lens on leather and SM communities, but she shares many of Maplethorpe's interests, including portraiture. In 1999, Opie made a series of seven photographs titled The O Portfolio, a response to Maplethorpe's X portfolio. But first, Francis Turpak, after the break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, the first comprehensive museum exhibition in the United States to examine the renowned experimental college. Leap Before You Look features more than 200 objects and 90 artists, including Annie and Joseph Albers, John Cage, Merce Cunningham, Ruth Asawa, Robert Rauschenberg, Elaine and Willem de Kooning, Susan Weil, and Cy Twombly. Delve into the history and influence of Black Mountain College with in-gallery performances and more than two dozen public programs, all free and open to the public. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Leap before you look, on view through May 15th at the Hammer Museum. Free for good. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Noah Purifoy Junk Data on view January 30th through April 10th. Junk Dada is the first major museum retrospective of Purifoy's work in almost 20 years. Bringing his fascinating career into focus like never before, the exhibition features more than 50 of his vibrant works dating to the late 1950s to the early 2000s. Originally organized and curated by Franklin Sermons and Yael Lipschitz for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, this is the exhibition's only stop outside of Los Angeles. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years, the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. And we're back. Francis Turpak, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. Several years ago, when the Getty and LACMA made their big joint Maplethorpe acquisition, one of the components was Maplethorpe's archive, which is now at the Getty Research Institute. 
How is the archive different from, separate from Maplethorpe's body of printed work, if you will? The archive was virtually unknown until we received it from the foundation as a gift, a complete gift, in 2011. It completely, I think, helps to redefine the trajectory of his career because it shows that Mablethorpe envisioned himself as more than a photographer. He felt and practiced as an artist, and the archive includes his early work, including his student work at Pratt, all the way through the final work that he produced. But it's more than just photographs. It's drawings, it's assemblages, jewelry from his, from his early work, and it shows how he was brilliant at many different fields, including film and many projects that he wanted to do that he didn't realize because he died at such a, in mid-career, he died at 42, as it's known, from AIDS. And if he had lived a fuller life, there would be a better understanding of him. And maybe a different airing of the archive. I mean, maybe we would, I mean, I, I was astonished as I as I read through the book at how much that was there I didn't. I hadn't read might be there. <laughs> well, well, that's it. And, and that's what I think that's what the archive shows is that he was an archivist himself. The head of his foundation says that, who was his longtime lawyer throughout his life, said that he was one of the best business people he had ever met. And the archive also shows that he was an incredible curator. He did some shows in his lifetime and that he had a real mission and purpose in life that doesn't come through in the history that we know about him because his work was sensationalized, as Jesse Helms did. He brought Maplethorpe into our living rooms, but it's created a very narrow view of him as an incredible, when he was just an incredible artist. Head of the Maplethorpe Foundation is Michael Ward Stout. Among the earliest stuff in the archive, as I understand it, are drawings and a single print that Maplethorpe made while a student at Pratt. Images in, in the catalog. We'll try to have a couple on manpodcast.com. What did Maplethorpe draw? And in hindsight, what do those drawings reveal or suggest about where he would go? Well, recognize that these pieces are from his early work and a lot of it also student work. 22, 23, something like that. Yeah, and he's at Pratt, and he's taking courses, and um, there's there there are projects that he's fulfilling. So he did take a printmaking class, and this incredible print, it's the only one in the archive, is called Extraction. It's a, a huge piece with an, an incredible delicacy to it. It's a beast, but it's a beast like no other beast. It's a fantasy beast that you see from the back with his head turned to the left, looking back out at the viewer. And there's this gossamer effect that comes through his wings. And it's done with this incredible violet wash. And I should say, too, that it's largely etching. So it's a, it's a print form that's quite delicate and fine. 
And I happened to pull it out a few years ago when we had first gotten the archive for a tour by the Print Council of America. So these are the print curators from all over the U.S. who travel once a year to some spot to have a meeting. And when they saw this, they were all literally just blown away by the quality of this print and taken aback that it was by Robert Maplethorpe. It's quite a thing. It's a little bit of Renaissance uh, bestiary. It's a little bit of Libanaku drawings and a little bit of Robert Smithson drawings. It's fantastical. And it's, I don't know if, remember if this is one of the places in the catalog you pointed to Maplethorpe's interest in surrealism, but it certainly fits. Right. And I think also what it shows is the viewpoint. It's a really strange viewpoint with, with the back end of this beast being the center of the, of the image. And in many ways, it shows that it's a preview of his later self-portrait that he did with the bullwhip. It also shows that he, early on in his, in his career, had a set iconography and he had a vision that he maintained all, all through. Maplethorpe leaves Pratt. He'd started making collages at Pratt. He continues making collages after he leaves Pratt. They're full of spray paint and collaged elements from gay porn magazines. The spray paint, why well, I didn't see the spray paint coming. I, I mean, that, that was a surprise. So you've seen and handled these. I've only seen pictures of them in the book. How does the spray paint work? And do you have a, a, a reading of, of why Maplethorpe uses it? I think he liked color, and I think it brought him a palette. He liked to work fast. He says that over and over in interviews. He had no patience. He really wanted to be a sculptor, but he, he couldn't deal with the fact that it took a long time to make a sculpture. So that's why I think he picks up spray paint, is it's, it's fast, it's easy for him to use. He readily became a master of it, and he uses it to the effect where he gets grid patterns, he gets overlays, and then he uses it on these images that he's bought on 42nd Street from porn magazines, but adds a dimension to the, to the, the subject that says something far more than the original porn. He changes porn into art, which is, which is really fascinating. Yeah, they're, 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 they're pretty amazing. We'll, we'll try to have images of a bunch of the stuff we'll be talking about here on, on manpodcast.com. And let me add one more thing. What's in the archive is not just single pages from the porn magazines, but he also created, and that's what we did in our book, is we tried to replicate it as much as, he, as best as we could. He created a uh, binder of these images that, in a way, tell a story. And with the spray paint over the emphasized parts that are left from the porn image, and they're a beautiful story. They're a, a quiet love story, I think, when you look through it. The book includes a terrific account of what, so far as I know, is Maplethorpe's first work in film or of film. What was it? How was it made? And where was it shown? Because it, it got reviewed almost immediately. Well, that was the film that Sandy Daly did of Robert getting his nipple pierced. And Sandy is an artist. She lives today in um, New York. And she was 
in a way, I think one of the most influential people in his period at the Chelsea Hotel. She took him under her wing, she lent him her Polaroid camera, and she gave him advice. And so Sandy was what she called an, an urban anthropologist in the way she shot. She didn't edit, and he knew she's a filmmaker, and Robert knew her work, and he, had, he wanted or had this fantasy of getting his nipple pierced and asked her if she would do a film of it, and indeed she did. It got aired at MoMA and got really great reviews. That was his first work in filmmaking in, as an actor, and then he went on to make a few films himself, still moving with Patty, and then another one of Lisa Lyon. But he often says in interviews that he wants to make more films. And there's a hilarious interview with him where he... All through his life, he was interested in porn and the fact that he wanted to work in it in some way or another. And he talks about wanting to do porn films, and he was going to build a 360-degree studio with a round bed and have a track so the camera could circle around the room and have special lighting with rheostat lighting that would highlight the bodies that are on the bed and really bring out the skin tones. So he would have gone on to, to make other kinds of films if he uh, had lived longer. You note a couple places in, 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 in the text that Maplethorpe was extremely interested in art history, and there are a couple of places in the early work where he references Michelangelo's Pietà. Is he consciously doing that pose in, in Robert having his nipple pierced? Indeed, he could be. I think other scholars have pointed out the references he's made to Renaissance and, and Baroque sculpture. My favorite, however, is because he, Robert had an incredible sense of humor, and I don't think it comes out fully in the literature that's been written on him. And he got his first interview with his first gallery, Holly Solomon, through the assistant there. And when he met Holly, she wasn't sure she was going to take him on as one of her artists. So she asked him to do a portrait of her and recognized that Holly Solomon's an established dealer. She's got a good reputation. And a portrait's already done of her by Warhol and Lichtenstein. So Mablethorpe clearly knew this. And the portrait that he does of Holly, uh, I think he was laughing uh, broadly when he, when he did it. And I don't think the joke came off to Holly. But what he did is, he, and he, it's a triptych, and he has her lounging in her bedroom with this gorgeous floral wallpaper in the background, silk pajamas on, she's smoking. And then in the triptych, the images, the first one on the left is uh, rather uh, shallow, the next one is bigger in terms of size, and the last one is, is a, a full-size image. And in the last one, what he's doing is he's referencing Bernini's Ecstasy of St. Teresa. So I think he was looking back at perhaps the Lichtenstein portrait of Holly, where she's more uh, virgin-like or, or uh, you know, more Catholic in terms of the outlook, her, her view. 
But here it's a full-blown reference to Bernini, and he knew what he was doing and, and really enjoyed, I think, that joke, that visual pun. When I first saw that in this book, I couldn't stop staring and laughing. It's it's unexpected and clever and, and as funny as, as you say. Yeah, and that's what my colleague, Michelle Brunick, who did the book with me, the co-author, that's what we really wanted to do throughout the book, is we wanted to bring across his sense of humor and his personality and create a book that he would have liked, not not just in the text, but also in the design. That's what we desperately tried to do. You know, talking about this range of things Maplethorpe was doing right after coming out of Pratt, it's probably a good time to note the range or the extent or the breadth of, of his practice at this point in, in, in his mid-20s. So he's not just doing collage and drawing and making the etching we discussed, but he's expanding into being in film and later into making film He's doing sculpture, and he's doing installations almost everywhere he lives for a number of years. How much of that work survives, and, and how does it survive as, as in, in photographic form, material form? Right. It's a shame more doesn't survive. We in the archive have a handful of small assemblages, and they're so tactile. I mean... Looking at them in an image is one thing, but being in their presence is another. And the archive also holds several dozen Polaroids that he took or he commissioned larger images, I think by Scavulo, of his assemblages, the large assemblages that would take up a whole wall. So there's fairly good documentation of them. In the LACMA exhibition, now on view in uh, Los Angeles, they were able to borrow through the Robert Miller Gallery one of these wall assemblages that he sold, I think, in a Chelsea Chelsea exhibition. And I hadn't seen it before, and I must say that it's an incredible piece because it's pictured in the book, and it's this – assemblage that looks like an altar with lots of drapery and 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 through this kind of gauzy drapery you can see an image of Christ the Pantocrator on the side and lights that make it quite mysterious and unfathomable as to what's going on but it's it's positioned on a desk and on the fold down of the desk is a hammer and the hammer has a purple bow on it So it has this ominous other sense to it that doesn't come across when you look at a reproduction of it. And then, for example, also on the LACMA, at the LACMA show, is his Tyrak, which is an image of the Virgin that has other pieces attached to it with being flanked by two ties. And what isn't apparent in looking at a reproduction of that is that the crucifix that's hanging below at the lower part of that object or image of her is put up with two needles. So there's always something, there's always something ominous about the image that comes across, which is hard to read in a reproduction. Just to clear up a moment of biography, was Maplethorpe Catholic or was he playing on the field? Oh, well, as he himself says in interviews, he said, I think anybody can pick up that I'm Catholic by looking at my work. 
one of the real pleasures of the book is seeing this early work, work Maplethorpe makes before he begins to think of himself as a photographer. Does the archive reveal how that pivot or turn, if it it is that acute, begins to happen, both in terms of practice and, I don't know, self-identification? Well, he, he, Maplethorpe says that he started, this is often quoted, that he started photographing with the Polaroid camera. Sandy Daly lent him hers because it was easier and cheaper than buying the porn magazines. And the archive has wonderful examples of this early spray paint over pornographic imagery. And then we have a good selection of his Polaroids. He did in his total years in doing in working with Polaroid cameras, he did about 1,500 Polaroids. So we have a couple hundred. Uh, Many of them have been sold and they're on the market and, and come up at auction. And then... This isn't exactly an answer to your question, but we also have in the archive about 3,000 Polaroids that he took as studio set-up shots when he was doing his his commercial work for his portraiture or his studio work. So the Polaroid and Maplethorpe discovering and using a Polaroid camera was, was you think, the, the, the pivotal pivot? I, I Yes, and for him it was... The, the speed of it. He he loved the speed of the Polaroid, and and he never took up darkroom work because when he was at Pratt, although he did take one photography class, he didn't really take it seriously. In fact, he says at one point that for a um, class, what he did is he actually took in his father's images because his father was an amateur photographer and had a darkroom at home because he simply didn't want to work in the darkroom. So the Polaroid was the perfect medium for him. And although a Polaroid camera might seem like an instrument that limits you in terms of what you can do, when you look at Maplethorpe's body of work, what you see is how he was able to manipulate it. And I think what we show in terms of what we have in the archive And we're in that incredible position here on the Getty Hill where we also have Sam Wagstaff's photo collection of some, um, what, 26,000 prints that Sam was building right at this time when Maplethorpe was experimenting for four or five years with the Polaroid. You can see that cross-pollination that's happening between the historic 19th century photographs that Sam's collecting and how Robert gets to experience those firsthand without a piece of glass in the, in the way and feel and touch them and study them and learn about them and how he takes that information and translates it into his Polaroid process. The Getty's acquisition of the Wagstaff collection was really the foundation of the Getty's great photography collection, the museum's great photography collection. And it's the perfect transition to, 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 to Maplethorpe and Wagstaff. So I guess before we get into that, who was Sam Wagstaff? Well, Sam Wagstaff was a curator for about 10 years. And the mentor, the patron, the lover, the soulmate of Robert Maplethorpe. I think the 
The way to understand Wagstaff the best is to read Philip Gefter's biography, Before and After Mapplethorpe. Gefter does a brilliant job of positioning Sam in the art scene in his period and explaining the relationship between him and Mapplethorpe. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting and will no doubt be useful to scholars for years hence that the Getty has the Wagstaff Trove from 1984, and now it has the Maplethorpe Archive. Did you get a chance while working on, on the book and the project to begin to think about whether anything from Maplethorpe's archive and, and, of course, Maplethorpe's life had an impact on Wagstaff the Collector? That's a really good question. Wagstaff always gave credit to Maplethorpe in terms of the influence they had, he had in his collecting. He says something in, a, in an interview about, if Robert weren't at my shoulder, I might not have done what I've done. So, for sure, it was not a one-sided relationship in terms of the collector or the artist. And even though they're sexual relationship only lasted a few years, it's very clear that Sam and Robert's relationship in terms of learning from one another was throughout their whole lives. They they were very closely with one another. And from notes, the archive has a wonderful set of letters from Sam to Robert. Robert rarely wrote. Uh, he was very visual. He He communicated visually, where Sam communicated through words. And there's a couple of instances besides the letters where Sam has notations on New York Times articles or book reviews that he has sent to Robert where he's underlined things or made made a note. And one of these is really an eye-opening thing where Sam points out to Robert that, I can't remember which one, but a feminist critic is commenting on a, a recent book that's come out. And he says, he underlines it, and he says, well, she recognizes that there aren't many images of male nudes. And I, I think, think it was Lyndon Nochlin. Probably, probably. And I think you can see that they're both, they have the same mission, Sam and Robert, and that is to redefine the history of art and make the male nude more of a subject matter in the period. I'm glad you mentioned that example because I, I, it's, it's in the book text and I thought it was one of the most revelatory paragraphs in, in the book. So we're kind of, we're getting toward the late 1970s and the the beginning of your essay in the archive book begins with a story about Maplethorpe's twin, well, not really twin, really more two, 1977 solo exhibitions, one at Holly Solomon, uh, one at the kitchen. Could you tell that story and detail what it suggests or reveals about how Maplethorpe considered the relationship between his pictures and I guess what we would now call the archive? I think this double venue exhibition and recognized it's really his coming out because he's he unlike Sam Wagstaff who was a closet gay, Maplethorpe was right out there in terms of his gayness. And what this nineteen what this nineteen seventy seven show is, is it's a double venue 
because the Holy Solomon Gallery would only show his portraits, his acceptable mainstream imagery, his flowers, and, but he wanted to show his leather sex images. So what he and Sam did, and I'm sure that Sam was part of the orchestration of this exhibition, this this double venue, is the kitchen, which was in walking distance of the Solomon Gallery, agreed to have an opening at the same time. And this was all the, the, the raw S&M bondage imagery that was coming out for the first time. And in many ways, it was a brilliant idea because it allowed Robert to get respectability in terms of himself as a photographer. In the Holly Solomon show, he had images of famous people. Patti Smith is already a well-known pop person. He's got British aristocrats, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's not yet governor, but but still a, a known figure. And so he gets respectability with the well-heeled, art-going crowd. And at the same time, he gets to come out as, in a way, personally, too, as a leather sex gay and show his other kind of imagery. And this is what he does throughout his whole career. Let me sort of compare him with Tom of Finland. Tom of Finland, a slightly older generation gay artist who has a certain kind of subject matter in terms of the male physique, has really a limited audience in terms of collectors because he only does one kind of imagery, where Maplethorpe throughout his career has a, has a, a broad kind of subject matter that reaches a uh, diverse audience. You mentioned Sam Wagstaff in these 1977 shows. What does the archive reveal about how Wagstaff impacted, shaped, I don't know, molded might be too strong a word, maybe not. What does the archive reveal about Wagstaff's personal involvement in shaping Maplethorpe's career? The letters to him show that besides terms of endearment, he would be talking about art and what was happening in the contemporary world. We know that he financed his life. They met in 72, and within that year, he bought him his loft on Bond Street, which is not insignificant. In the 80s, I think it's 85, He, uh, even though Maplethorpe is a well-established photographer by then and pulling in a, a decent income and has a worldwide reputation, Sam again purchases a second loft, the one on 23rd Street. So he provides him a comfort, I would say, that most other artists didn't have. I mean, it was it was the style of a Renaissance patron where you didn't have to worry where the next check or the meal was coming from so you could concentrate on your work. I mean, what a what a gift. We talked earlier about Maplethorpe's tactile, physical involvement with Wagstaff's collecting. One of the artists Wagstaff collected was a French photographer, 19th century photographer named Nadar. Who, who was Nadar and how, how does Nadar kind of pop up in the story here again and again, including in 1977? Well, Sam was voracious about collecting. Uh, stories go that 
he would go out and just come home with paper bagfuls of photographs some days and recognize that it was still the stepchild. Photography was a stepchild of the art world, so one could find great things unexpectedly out there. And so the story goes that Sam was actually trying to buy an incredible album in London at auction of Margaret Cameron. He set the record price at that time, and if I have the date right, I think it's 75, and he paid a record price. I think it was something like 52,000 pounds. But the British art world realized that they were going to lose a national treasure, and so they raised the funds and blocked it. And Sam generously, I think, helped them also to do that because Sam himself had a personal interest in raising the status of photography. So when that happened, he then went on and he had lost the Cameron album, and that's when he started collecting Nadar. I think he had known about Nadar before. Felix Nadar is, excuse me, a French photographer, one of the best studio photographers of the period in Paris. And he bought a cache of Nadars that I think probably influenced greatly Maple Forbes own style in terms of doing his portraiture because you and when you look at an Adar there's a it's an 1860s photograph you can feel that there's a connection between the photographer and the subject and Mablethorpe himself says that with Nadar you see that there's a respect that the subject has for the photographer and I think this was very important to Mablethorpe because at the time photography wasn't exactly an acceptable art form in museums. It was just starting to be taught as a as a history of, of, of medium in, in schools. And so for him, I think it was really important, now that he had taken on the career of being a photographer, that there was this recognition of it uh, as a, a uh, an artistic profession. A little earlier, you mentioned, and I skipped over it when I probably shouldn't have, that Maplethorpe's relationship with the darkroom was absent. It wasn't something he was interested in or did. Others, Other people printed his pictures. Does the archive reveal anything in particular about Maplethorpe's thoughts on relationship to lack of interest in the darkroom? Well, yes and no. I think what, and I think it's out there for the next scholar to discover, we hold about a thousand prints that are the type that are the edition prints, and some of them are different outtakes than the edition prints. Uh, let me back up and say that Maplethorpe editioned 1968 prints. So what we hold are variants of those prints. We also hold variants of his commercial work, his fashion work. He worked, he loved fashion and wanted to do more of it. And then just other prints that he happened to be taking, I think, in terms of experimenting and pushing things forward. I think what's unrecognized about Maplethorpe and what comes out in looking at the archive, because it's vast. I mean, it's over 300 linear feet. It's 300 boxes of material. It's 13 flat files. And what comes out in, in looking through the archive, just from A to Z, is that he was always pushing the envelope. Although he had the same repertoire since the 70s, what becomes clear in the 80s is that he's taking the same kinds of subjects, but he's refining them and refining them and refining them. 
And, for example, so silver gelatin is the standard kind of edition print, but he does platinum. I think he's the first artist to do a platinum print on canvas. He does oversized platinum prints. He does color photogravures. He does this incredible sparkle prints. We hold two magnificent light boxes that are in the style of a Jeff Wall, but they're Mablethorpe's, and they're One of them is a beautiful portrait of one of his um, lovers, Jack Wall. And a light box is lit from the back. It's a color Siva chrome. And just the color between Wall's skin and his dreadlocks. And it's this fusion of yellows and roses and purples. It's absolutely gorgeous. You mentioned Maplethorpe's commercial work a moment ago. And there's a whole dedicated chapter uh, in the book on, on Maplethorpe's commercial work, complete with lots of splashy, shiny, colorful pictures. Did Maplethorpe think about or approach his commercial work any differently than he did his so-called fine art work? Yes. And and here I really have to give a nod to my co-author, Michelle Brunick, because in sorting through this archive, it was her idea that this deserved a chapter on his commercial work which really had never been studied before. And it couldn't be because you really needed the archive. And why it's apparent, uh, let me go down a different road for a minute, come back to this, but why it's apparent that commercial work was important to him is because in the archive we have 12 binders that he himself, large, large notebooks that he himself compiled that are a record of his recognition in the art world and things that he was doing from the earliest gay cover that he did for gay power in 1970 through to the end. So it shows his commercial work or a critic's writing on him. And it becomes apparent that his commercial work was hugely important to him Possibly also in the 80s that happened, too, as Sam and his relationship personally was a little bit distant. So he had to rely more on himself for his income, and he sought out commercial work. He loved fashion, and although he wasn't the typical fashion photographer, and I, I had a really interesting phone call with the head of a book call, of a company called The Agency, which is a modeling agency that had just begun in um, the early 80s. And the owner, Alfredo Santiago, told me how Mablethorpe pursued him, discovered that he was going to be at a party that was a black tie affair on Fifth Avenue and got himself invited to the party to meet Santiago. (laughs) And then that night at the party convinced him that they needed to have a meeting the next day. And Santiago said he, he appeared at his office the next day and really wanted to have the commission that year to shoot the agency's annual book to advertise their models. And Santiago wasn't all that keen on taking him on. He wanted a more established photographer. And Mablethorpe wouldn't hear anything about it and started pulling out references. And so when Santiago challenged him and said, well, who, who's going, who can you give me as a reference? He pulled out his address book and gave him the home number for Yves Saint Laurent. <laughs> And he got he obviously got the commission. And then Santiago said, 
it was a great it was a great booklet, but the problem is that the copies were disappearing because people were stealing them. Like at the factory, the Warhol factory was stealing them because they loved it so much. Well, that that's a, a perfect segue to my last question, which is you, you write that one of the things the archive reveals is Maplethorpe's, quote, confidence in his ability to achieve fame. That story is a pretty good example of that. Are there other ways, other places, uh, Maplethorpe's confidence in his ability to achieve fame particularly struck you? He knew all through his life that he was going to be famous. And he had a ferocious ability to work. So I think in the answer to that would be that when you see the archive and you see his output, that it becomes clear that he was always striving to do something that was new and something better. And he was always trying to be on a voyage of discovery and make him his work stand out. Francis Turpak, thanks so much for talking with me. It was a pleasure. The Gettys Spring Book Sale is happening now. From in-depth research on Jackson Pollock's monumental mural to delightful children's books, beautifully illustrated exhibition catalogs, and scholarly art historical publications. There's something for the artist and everyone. Get 50% off selected titles through May 15th at shop.getty.edu. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents Anne Veronica Janssen's The Belgian Artist's First Solo Museum Exhibition in the U.S. Called A Master of Light by The Wall Street Journal, Visitors can experience Janssen's multi-sensory work, including walking through the work Blue, Red, and Yellow, a freestanding pavilion in the garden featuring artificial fog radiantly suffused with the primary colors of its exterior walls. And Veronica Janssen's currently on view through April 17, 2016. For more information, visit NasherSculptureCenter.org or call 214-242-5100. Welcome back. My next guest is Catherine Opie. She's a much-honored photographer whose many museum exhibitions include a retrospective at the Guggenheim in 2008. Today, she's kind enough to join me to talk about something else, her long-standing interest in Robert Maplethorpe's work. In 1999, Opie made a series of photographs titled The O Portfolio, a direct response to Maplethorpe's X Portfolio. And in 2004, she curated an exhibition from the Maplethorpe Foundation Holdings for Mark Selwyn Gallery in Los Angeles. Kathy Opie, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me, Tyler. So let's start with the three Maplethorpe portfolios, X, Y, and Z. Do you remember when you first saw Yeah, the X portfolio was, was amazing because the first time that I was able to see it was when I was a student at San Francisco Art Institute in the 80s. And Jeffrey Frankel had just started out Frankel Gallery at that point or had been going for a little while. You know, and I was this like young, like little baby leather dyke coming in and asking him, hey, do you think I could look at that work again, that that portfolio, the X portfolio? And Jeffrey would kind of, you know, wink and it was very sweet. And he'd say, OK, OK, let's let's look at it again together. And he would pull it out any time 
that I would want to see it. So that was probably, I would say, 1983, 84, maybe. So you kept going back. Going back, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember being aware of or interested in Y or Z at that point or later? No, Y and Z came up much later in terms of just watching what was happening in relationship to the debates around uh, the censorship to Maplethorpe. I wasn't aware of Y and Z until those moments in relationship to his his, retrospe- his retrospective. So I, I, I gather X is still the one that means the most to you. Uh, yeah, I mean, X is the one that I've had a conversation with because I made the O portfolio basically in relationship to Maplethorpe's X portfolio and wanted it and also thought of it as like a tic-tac-toe game. Like, you know, I'm always interested in how we create conversations with other artists that, you know, have influenced us or that at least have been in the, you know, always within our mind's eye in relationship to being you know, he was like one of the only ones that I had an example of that was from a queer community that was doing really amazing work that I had never seen before. And and so I wanted to have a conversation with him in a, in a kind of a tic-tac-toe game. And so I made the O portfolio in relationship to the X portfolio. Your O portfolio was 1999. Yeah. Going back, so if you first saw... X in the mid 80s. Has there been any kind of change in how you've thought about or looked at the work over the last 25 years? Or is it kind of the same for you as it was when you first saw it? It's the same. I mean, some images are utterly just beautiful and perfect in that way, in which that they're, you know, so formal, and others still make me wince, you know? I, you know, that ball crusher image is just one of the hardest images I've ever seen in terms of any photograph. Dick, NYC from 1978. Yeah, that's a pretty tough image. It, that, that is certainly the most, I think, intense image in the portfolio and maybe the most intim- intense image he ever made. It's the next to last image in the portfolio too. So, so in the portfolio, the only image that's after it is is Maplethorpe's own self-portrait. Right. You have described your own portfolio, which, as I mentioned earlier, was from 1999, as being quieter than Maplethorpe's X portfolio. How is it? How do you think of it as being quieter? I don't think it's as graphic. I think it has to do more with the details of what is lost in terms of my own kind of sexual desire and also I felt that whenever one of the things that happened with the O portfolio is they're actually just details pulled from larger negatives and when I was making black and white kind of you know erotica or porn work or whatever you want to call it I was I was a little bit disappointed in the fact that I didn't feel like I was doing anything new or anything fresh with it And I think that the O portfolio is an attempt to have that conversation with Robert, but because they're just details or moments picked out of larger kind of images, uh, I felt that that was quieter, that all of a sudden it was about focusing in, and, and by focusing in, it became internal. So X being very external and O being somewhat internal as well as O being, you know, kind of 
representation of a, of a vagina as well in terms of the letter. So just, just thinking about kind of masculinity and femininity, even though I identify as butch, but just trying to play off of those dichotomies that I felt you know, we're in relate, we're in dialogue with one another, and but trying to create a relationship. I think one of the most fascinating parts of the O portfolio for me has always been that they are their details. They are. It, it, is it that you were not trying to perhaps compete with the formality and the composition and the I don't know almost stricture of of what Maplethorpe had made? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that you know. One of the things that would have happened is the work would have just ended up being only in comparison to, well, Maplethorpe did it so much better than Kathy Opie could ever have done it. But no, I mean, in a way he can, you know, I mean, I think that formally, probably if he was around still, if Robert was around, he would applaud my ability with color because apparently, according to the sources, he was always trying to figure out how to really make color work for him in a way. And I think that, you know, a little bit of that happens with me in relationship to black and white and how the images function is they, that they just weren't, the details were so much more interesting to me than the, the kind of whole scene. Like I, I, got to, I got to edit my own work basically, which is something I rarely do because I do shoot full frame and very intentionally, you know? When you were in college, were you interested in his work beyond the sexual content? Were you interested in his classicism or his formalism or his compositions? Or was it mostly about the X portfolio for you? Well, I think that it, it started out with the X portfolio. And then as I got to know him as a portraitist, I was very interested in the way that he constructed portraits. And I really like, you know, I really believe that aesthetically he was able to get away with a lot because of what he brought formally to the images. And I think that that is, you know, a page that I tore from his notebook for sure. There aren't any specific portraits per se in XYZ up at LACMA now. But I, before we started taping, you mentioned that you were fond of the installation there. And I wonder if you could outline what about it you like. Well, I like that the what, what Britt did in terms of the actual scale of the room that it's installed in. I think the paint color is almost like this dried blood, you know? <laughs> which really makes the black and white images pop out in this really kind of interesting way. And then I think hanging this line lower is a really brave way of installing the show. It's like one whole wall is hung very, very low, almost at child height, almost in this, like, you know, almost in this bravado kind of way of a curator saying, yes, he's been censored. And, you know, but we're going to we're going to hang this so that, you know, right at a child's height in a certain way. And also you're asked as a viewer to almost get down and, and become more intimate with it. I think it's a really interesting hanging of the work. Do you see Y and Z differently or in a more specific way than you would if they weren't hung right there with X? I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I never really thought about that before. I, I don't think so. I think that, you know, installation design, it, it, it is, I understand kind of the separation. I mean, it would be interesting to try to, to see them, 
you know, kind of mixed together, but then it really takes away from what a photographer's portfolio does in relationship to sequencing, because, you know, I'm a big fan of the portfolio in terms of the fact that you open this box up and it's in a specific sequence and you read it like a book, but yet there are prints and it's a portfolio. One reason I asked that is because in 2004, you curated a show from the Maplethorpe Estate for the Mark Selwyn Gallery in Los Angeles. And I want to ask you some questions about what you picked and, and its relation, their relationship to the XYZ portfolios. But first, maybe you could describe for people what you were asked to do in 2004 and what it was you did. Well, the, the, uh, what I was asked was basically the foundation was asking all these different artists to actually have a conversation with Maplethorpe's work in terms of becoming curators of it. And so I was basically set, you know, told that I could have access to the entire archive and really curate a selection of Maplethorpe's work in relationship to my own ideas around it. And, you know, for a moment, I thought of only putting the X portfolio in because it was the it was like the, you know, the thing that I looked at the most. It was the closest to Robert in relationship to my own kind of, OK, what does it mean to take photographs in relationship to the SM community? You know, and it's a it's a question I always had and, and that I still, I think, am interested in how do you do that successfully, you know? And one of the things you, you chose to do was not to include any photographs from X or, or from Y or Z from that matter, but virtually everything you chose, in fact, maybe everything you chose has a relationship to those three portfolios. So were you thinking about them and your show in, in, in those terms? Yeah, I was. I was actually. And it was about being able to move in and out. And it was also in relationship to how how curators in the past had dealt with Maplethorpe's work. And I felt that often the sequencing of the work was only in relationship to the idea of the portfolio and what it began to, and how it began to work. And often the portraits were always just grouped together. And what I wanted to do was move you through it in the way from the body to the person so that in the sequencing that you really ended up having this relationship from not only just the object, but to the faces, to the body, and then to spaces and a landscape, you know, which nobody really ever thinks about Robert taking any landscapes. A winter landscape at that. I mean, a really kind of severe. Yeah, a very beautiful winter landscape. Yeah. That photograph is from 1979. I want to ask about some of the specific pictures you chose in a moment, but but thematically first, it looks like you were interested in his relationship to Catholicism. Oh, that's interesting. I never really thought about that. I don't even think that I was thinking about that. But I think about, I don't think about Catholicism. I think about the idea of religion more so in relationship to uh, forming such kind of anti-homosexual position and my own struggle with the Christian right probably came through in relationship to how I was looking at Robert because of Robert's own kind of you know, personal struggle with his family in terms of Catholicism and his identity as being, you know, a gay male pervert. One of the images in your show is Maplethorpe's self-portrait of his arm from 1976, in which his arm is is out almost 
well, probably quite directly referencing a crucifix, and two other pictures that are titled Pictures Self-Portrait from 1977. In which, right, with the hand and then the gloved hand. Writing the word pictures in which the T is a cross. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. The T is a cross in that. And it is about that kind of dualism. And I think about that dualism all the time in terms of pictures, picture, you know, of, of what we allow to be public, what we allow to be private, what people's assumptions are of us in relationship to, you know, living a very out queer life, what it means to represent that. Like, I just felt like, you know, in a, in a certain way, the show that I was doing with Mark Selwyn was my love letter to Maplethorpe. In fact, you wrote a letter to Maplethorpe in conjunction <laughs> yes, with the show. I did write a letter to Maplethorpe, yeah, that I read, that I read at a conference. And uh, I'm trying to think who was on that panel. But anyway, and then they they loved the letter so much after I read it at the, at the uh, panel discussion that they asked to put it in the book. So the letter I didn't write while I was making the curating the show, it came after. There are several pictures in your show in which you, I don't know if it's fair to say you went out of your way to stress the classicism of Maplethorpe's images, but it sure might be. One of them is a picture from 1987, Antennas, photograph of, I guess, a Greek nude? Mm-hmm. And, and then another one later on titled The Sluggard from 1979. Is Maplethorpe's or was Maplethorpe's being a classicist important to you or did you just were you attracted to the images for a different reason when you put the show together? No, I think that, that you know, the classicism and, and the formalism is something that I'm always using within my own work and that I'm very attached to. And I think it is a way for people to keep people engaged you know, in relationship to how they approach subjects. And I think that Maplethorpe, you know, kind of honed that territory in a way that really allowed his work to be palatable, which is really different than the rest of a lot of the other work that has come out of our community. And so, yeah, I mean, I want, I want, I, I want to be seduced. I'm interested in seduction. I like the way that photograph seduce and you, I want to be held by a photograph. And often it is those kind of formal qualities of an image that, that do it for me, that go back to kind of a, a, you know, a history of painting and sculpture and so forth in relationship to form and figure. One of the pictures you included is incredibly formally rigorous and, and really austere and minimal, but is also kind of transfixing in an unusually beautiful way, and that is Peeing in Glass from 1977. Oh, I know. Isn't that an incredible image? I'm guessing, without knowing, that a lot of these pictures you chose to include in your show you hadn't seen before. No, a lot of them were surprises to me, and that was the beauty of having the archive. And also just doing that grid of flowers on the back wall, it interrupted what was happening in the narrative of the black and white. But no, I, I think that the winter landscape was a super big surprise for me. The portrait of Alice Neal has just always been one of my all-time favorite portraits. And plus, I love Alice Neal as a painter. I think that the you know portrait does these things that her own portraits of people do. So there were different moments in which it was also a love affair of who Robert got to look at, you know? Because as a person who really likes to look at people and also make portraits, 
Like there was, there was like not in, in, in relationship to any kind of envy, but just an acknowledgement of what it is in history to be able to bear witness and have people sit for you and have that be part of a history of one's practice. So I think in a certain way, like the, the bit of the curatorial work that I was doing was Maplethorpe was also in relationship to an idea of a history of representation through, you know, different moments in his life. You also included a photograph titled Television 1982, which shows what appears to be black and white television on a wall, and it's it's locked into place, kind of giving us the idea that we might be in a motel or something somewhere. And at about the time you were selecting these these pictures of Mark Selwyn, or I guess just afterward, you yourself made a series of photographs uh, kind of around the uh, presidential campaign around yeah, in and in and around home, it was the re-election of Bush, and 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 then Kerry was his, uh, you know, was the Democratic nominee, and I was I was making Polaroids off the TV of of that time, and I I think that you know televisions and images, there's like always the go-to images that I think that every photographer, no matter what history they're a part of that it always is part of the lexicon of language one is the hotel room every photographer in every hotel room and and I, good luck trying to find a photographer who hasn't taken like the kind of freelander picture where it's like looking out the window you know or winogrand or frank or maple but the thing that that Robert was looking at, which was even better about the hotel room, was that all of a sudden that chain to the TV was no longer about a protection or the idea of, of you know, thievery. It was literally about, you know, uh, seduction, that he saw that chain in the same way that he saw a collar and a leash around the leather couple, you know? And that, is, you know, I was going to ask you about that one next. That's Brian Ridley and Lyle Heater from 1979. It's the only well-known, it's the only very well-known anyway, Maplethorpe photograph you you chose. Yeah, I guess it is the only really well-known one. Although I had the self-portrait whip up his ass. Didn't I have that one in the show or did I choose the different one? Because that's, I mean, I, I might have left that out because it was too easy for me to yeah, because I wasn't trying to do the greatest hits of Maplethorpe at all. But that that photograph, and especially juxtaposing it in relationship to the TV with the chain, you know, in terms of in, the installation, though, you know, you just kind of had to do that. I mean, they were really interesting together. And it's really effective because you have a figure in a leather hood wearing chains. And that, that photograph is Leather Mask from 1980. Yeah. I think you own a Maplethorpe. I do. It was beautiful. The uh, foundation gave me a beautiful photograph of uh, of the two men dancing with the crowns on the head. Yes, that one is titled Two Men Dancing from 1984. And that is another one of the most surprising images in your show. Two very pale, very carefully lit men wearing crowns dancing close. Yeah, and it's such a it's such a tender image. It's a really, really beautiful image. And I would say that that image... When you see my next body of work, there's an image that I made that it's kind of an homage in relationship to living with that photograph, but it's also utterly different where I have Pigpen and Julie Tolentino 
kissing with blood dripping down their mouths because they had just done piercing, a piercing and a weaving of embroidery thread in each other's mouths. But I have them holding each other and kissing, which is very much like the men dancing with the crowns. The lighting in men dancing is is really remarkable. And indeed, the lighting in all of the ex-portfolio images is exquisite. Is that something that that you followed or tried to learn from? A little bit. I mean, I think that that lighting comes, you know, again, from painting. And I, you know, it's obviously, I mean, I, I think that it's interesting that, that Robert and I have the same kind of, I think, love affair and, and, and with, with, with a period of painting that's basically, you know, 16th, 17th century, you know, it's like, I could tell, like, he looked at a lot of Caravaggio's in the same way that I've looked at a lot of Caravaggio and, and Holbein and so on. And, but the interesting thing about Robert is he never really talked about painting as a huge influence. Except for wanting to be paid like painters. Right, except for wanting to be paid by painters. The, 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 the photograph that I think you're referring to is Helmet NYC from 1978, which features traditional drapery in the upper left, uh, echoing Holbein and something that you used in one of your own self-portraits. Yeah, no, definitely fabric is a good thing to be using. Also, it, you chose another image in your 2004 show that I wasn't familiar with, and it's a, it's a self-portrait from 1983 in which Maplethorpe is holding a knife. And I was wondering if you could talk about that picture and why it struck you. I think that because it's, again, it wasn't one of the really well-known self-portraits. At all. At all. And I I also wanted to think about the relationship to the holding of the knife to the potential of blood. And then it also is like a really odd picture. Like He's I, holding his left hand, and we'll have an image of it up on Modern Art Notes. He's holding his left hand in a way that doesn't quite recall a claw, but that doesn't quite recall just holding it there either. Yeah, I think I just really like the awkwardness of it. You know? And there's no, I think normally if we if we thought about Robert Maplethorpe holding a knife, we might think of that knife being, especially in a show curated by Kathy Opie, we might think of that knife being at a certain jaunty angle, and this one is not. This is this is at a an angle that has other intent. This is it's it's an image that kind of both indicates violence and maybe a fear of violence. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's a knife as prop, too. You know, it's very much it's just like, and I mean the way that may, the way that Robert used props sometimes was very interesting, and and some of them worked and some of them didn't work, and I just think that I really wanted like you know that sense of danger as, and then what you said was really beautiful. Like I think that there is this moment in which that you don't know if it's for self-infliction or infliction on other, but it just has this this tension that seemed very awkward to me. You also included a photograph of Arnold Schwarzenegger in the show, and really Arnold Schwarzenegger is the only kind of sullen or unhappy person in your show. <laughs> yeah, you kind of had to do He was our <laughs> governor at the time, you know? <laughs> I know. And, and if, I, if I remember correctly, you included right near Schwarzenegger, a certain, a Maplethorpe of the American flag from 1977. Yes, that is true. And the flag, the flag is tattered and not in great shape. Yeah. No, and I think that that's another thing is I like the flag. I've been looking at the flag a lot. I, when you walk in my front door, the first photograph that you see coming into the house is, is uh, Robert Gober holding up the American flag with his dog on the beach. 
And I think that there's, again, this relationship to conservatism and government and America that is something that I was, you know, in my like narrative of installation that, you know, we're looking at the governor of California at the time that, you know, Prop 8 went, went you know, flaming down, even though that didn't happen at that time, but just in terms of policy and what he stood for and also utter masculinity. And then all of a sudden he's this guy in power from Conan to the governor, you know, it just didn't make any sense to me. So I just wanted that juxtaposition of like, you know, this, this figure that was all about just being about the body. And then now he is about our government and how he's governing our state that we're living in. And finally, do you have a favorite in the ex-portfolio, a picture that maybe you find yourself mentally returning to more often than the others? The other one that's really interesting to me is the hooded man with the latex hose coming out. Oh, well, he's got one leg up on a bench. Yeah. There is quite a background in that photograph. It looks like maybe trash bags that have been dramatically lit. Yeah. It's Joe NYC from 1978. Why that one? Let me think about that for a moment. I think it's that one that, you know, and that with the, with, with the bloody penis, but that there is, there is this incredible form in it. But then when you get past all the lighting and all the form that it, it, it does this thing to you that creates an internal anxiety. And I think, I mean, personally, I hate having my head covered. So even when I covered my head in pervert, it was like a huge thing for me to do because I can't really have anything over my head. I, you know, even if I'm cold, I won't put the covers over my head to warm up. You know, <laughs> I just would rather be cold. But I think that it is about the the form of it and that it's it works both formally and emotionally and they contradict it, con it. There's a contradiction within that that I find interesting. The figure in the photograph is both bracing himself and kind of leaning forward in a in a way that indicates progression, if you will. It's 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 a wonderful image. Well, Kathy Opie, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts on Robert Maplethorpe with us on the Modern Art Notes podcast. No, I enjoyed it, and it's great to talk to you again. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.